Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live, everybody. To learn more about Creative on Purpose, visit creativeonpurpose.com and feel free to grab your free copy of Stepping Into Possibility. Remember that this broadcast is also an iTunes podcast. You can check it out and leave a five-star review. 30 seconds of your generosity helps spread the goodness delivered by today's guest. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live. These conversations are about flying higher and endeavors that make a difference. Do the work you're meant to do now. It's time to be creative on purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Endeavor and Chief Difference Maker at Creative on Purpose. You can learn more about me and my work and grab a free copy of Stepping Into Possibility at creativeonpurpose.com. Now, let's meet today's guest. Natalie Nixon, so excited to have you with us. Welcome to the broadcast. Please tell our viewers who you are, what you're up to these days, and where can they go to learn more about you and your work? Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Natalie Nixon. I am a creativity strategist and the president of Figure Eight Thinking. I'm based in Philly. You can find out a lot more about my work and what I'm up to on figure8thinking.com. That's the figure eight, like the ice skating uh, pattern, and it's the number eight, not spelled out. I'm the author of a brand new book. It's called The Creativity Leap, uh, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. And one of the things I'm up to these days is I'm developing an online creativity course that will be a companion piece to the book. Fantastic. Well, I am thrilled to have you here. I listened to the audio version of your book and I really enjoyed you reading it to me while I was out doing my cemetery run. And then I had to get myself a hard copy as well. Um, wow, thank because, you. Well, because it's so rich and full of juicy goodness that I needed to get my highlighter and my <laughs> pen out so that I could. Um, and, you know, we are both involved in in creative work and so I, I i saw a lot of um alignment and i got also got turned on to some really uh new ideas and new way new perspectives that i want to dive into but i'd love to begin with just um because you weave a little bit of your origin story throughout throughout the book i mean we learn about all of the creative enterprises that you've been involved in over the years so could you give us just like the thumbnail sketch of the natalie nixon origin story what brought you to the point where you are right now Oh, jeepers. Well, first of all, that's really high praise. And I thank you for uh, purchasing the audiobook and the, the paperback. But to hear that my book is dog-eared and underlined, I, I love to hear that. So thank you. Um, so I'm a Philly girl. I was a city kid. I, I was a um, a bit of a, of a proud goofball, a nerd, a bookworm, and um, grew up in a close-knit family and what's considered a bit of a crunchy granola community in Philly called Mount Airy. Uh, we were on more of the proletariat side, East Mount Airy uh, versus West Mount Airy. And I grew up in a home where the, where music was really textured throughout our home. So my mother actually studied to be an opera singer. She said voice. And so on the one hand, lots of classical music in our home. And on the other, my, my dad was a big jazz head. And so uh, devotee of Blue Note jazz album. So there was that element. And um, I also grew up studying dance. So I started dancing at age four. I studied modern dance, Horton Technique for any of you uh, modern dance um, experts or, or nerds out there. And um, I, I really credit dance at various points in my life for having saved my life. And what I mean by that is Dance gave me both an anchor and a grounding, which comes from the sweaty, 
gritty discipline that is required to be a dancer. It's there's nothing cute about it, even though female dancers when up on stage look just svelte and pristine and pretty and sweet and and all that, whatever the role calls for. But the actual prog process to get to that point um, is pretty rough and tumble. Um, but dance also gave me this capacity to be really curious about other people. It, it exposed me to really diverse groups of people early on, either if it was through the portal of music, which is always the background and context for, for dance. Um, and, it, and it requires you to dream. It requires you to envision yourself literally if it's to make a physical movement like a leap uh, or just to be in to be able to tell the story well so i credit dance very much with that i went to four very different types of schools by the time i graduated from high school i started out in a um talk about it as, as a crunchy granola nursery school a unitarian church nursery school when i was for about a year and a half when i was four, around four I, I started at kindergarten through third grade at, an, at a very kind of typical urban Philly public school uh, where you had to know how to fight. It was, it was um, probably 98% African-American and my, my mom and dad fought to get me into um, what were considered the advanced sections where I would uh, over and over be the only brown girl in the, in the class in a school that was 98% black. And uh, my mother was getting really frustrated with having to teach me my multiplication tables and how to tell time. And so my parents, figured out that if we went to a, a neighboring public school in the suburb, uh, that would work, but they'd have to pay money to that county because we still live in Philly. Well, that was, um, uh, that put me to the foray of um, the, of integration. This was in the seventies. And uh, I became the first and only black child in that class. I was called the N word for the first couple of weeks of fourth grade when I was nine years old and quickly had to learn um, how to stand up for myself. My father also was just a, an amazingly constant presence in that chapter. He would just appear in the school, stand in the doorway of the classroom. I'd see him down the hall talking to the principal just to check on me. Um, by the end of that school year, those, those same knucklehead boys were my buddies because I was athletic and sports is a way that kids connect. But it taught me a lot about a world that I did not realize existed, a world where, you know, especially it's timely now with, with all the social um, injustice protests that are going on, a world where I had to, I had to understand how I was seen through other people's eyes. And then from seventh through 12th grade, I, I um, attended a very privileged, awesome, elite education, uh, private prep school, uh, Germantown Friends School, um, where uh, the learning was just off the chain. And I quickly understood that the culture of learning there was to be a provocateur. It was to challenge and question everything. But what that taught me, I, I was around, I was about an eighth grader. I didn't have the words for it yet, but I remember there was this moment walking down the hallway where I, I thought to myself, gosh, the kids, my friends back on the block and, and kids I grew up with in public school, we were being taught to fill in the dots, to stay in our lane. And now um, it's expected that I, I blow the roof off the mother. I was, it was expected that I, I really challenge everything. And so all of those sorts of experiences really shaped me to who I am today and, and I'm very, I'll just end this by saying, and then I end up having a very loopy uh, professional career of a background in anthropology and fashion, which which is now conspired to uh, my work as a creativity strategist.
Yeah, well, what I love about your story is that there's it's, uh, the path looks clear in retrospect. Exactly. But as you were following it, I, I imagine you spent a lot of time going, where is this going? Exactly. Um, one of the things that, because I am a jazz musician, there's Miles on the wall and I got Django above him. Nice, um, nice. And, uh, you know, I was really drawn into the way that you were talking about jazz as being um, influential. And um, most people that see me dance don't call it dancing, but I, I've been known to, to cut a step or two. But, you know, there's in both of those disciplines that you draw upon, there's a lot of this give and take. And then you at the center of your book is this idea that we develop our craft through this dance, this give and take between wonder and rigor. Um, right. And I know that you've been on other broadcasts talking about this, but I would love for you to just, I thought I found it to be the, the most profound thing that, that um, hit me just completely uh, on, on the nose. And I, th I think it's a beautiful metaphor. So just share a little bit about, you know, what the how I would love to hear how you arrived at that, but then tell tell the viewers what that what you mean by that. Sure. Well, thank you for that. What, what I mean by that is, is I, I define creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And thank you for, for capturing that. You know, in retrospect, our lives make a lot more sense, but going through it, it's 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 incredibly loopy. And even the process of landing with these frameworks to make creativity more accessible was not a linear process at all. Um, creativity is a complex system, and more specifically, it is a chaotic system. And a chaord is a word that D. Hawk, the founding president of Visa, made up. He wanted to figure out how could he, he, he thought to himself, I, I suppose, um, how might I, I lead this global company whose purpose is to be this platform for the virtual exchange of currency in a way that mimics more the way we see things work in nature. Uh, in nature, we see that things have a bit of chaos and they have a bit of order. And that thus came his, his mix up, his mashup of, of those two words. I learned about chaotic systems thinking, which is a whole scholarship academic category. As I was completing a PhD uh, in the field of design management, my doctoral studies were looking at improvisational organizations. I was specifically really interested in how the Ritz-Carlton, which is an improvisational organization, designs experiences for guests. And I concluded at the end of that journey that the most innovative organizations are improvisational. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually mapped the ways that the Ritz-Carlton works um, through the lens of jazz. So jazz is a complex chaotic system. It has some randomness or chaos as well as some order and you are well aware of that. Um, so that was the like the first aspect that was, again, this was probably like well, I completed the doctorate in t 10 years ago. So that was just the beginning of the seed planting. Then at this stage of my career as a professor, I, I was also a professor for 16 years. The last six years of my academic career, I founded and um, launched with the help of some really brilliant colleagues from both industry and academia, something called the Strategic Design MBA program. This was at Philadelphia University, mm -hmm. which is now Thomas Jefferson University. And my professional network started to expand to include people from the startup world. And as I would listen to their origin stories, uh, I would keep hearing references to 
something told me not to do the deal or something told me to work with her over him. And I thought, gosh, I think that's intuition. We do not touch that in business school or medical school or law school, but successful leaders consistently reference it and acknowledge it. And I, I define intuition as pattern recognition. That got me to a whole another stream of research where I um, started being really curious about the role of intuition for leadership. And then the, 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 the next layer was when I started reading a lot of Warren Berger's work and Warren Berger wrote a more beautiful question. And I, I was really coming at his work from the, from the perspective of design thinking. So I, I'm a design thinking practitioner as well. And I really enjoyed and appreciated the very simple framework of asking questions as a way of thinking, starting with why, leading to what if, and then how. In my consulting work, and I started to really, um, I left academia in, in 2017, my clients were wanting to build cultures of innovation. And they kept throwing around this word innovation. And I had this feeling like, I think we're not actually talking about the same thing all the time. We're like loosely using this word innovation. I think we need to pause, take a step back and start with creativity. The challenge was you never hear the word creativity uttered in the boardroom of a, of a corporation. Um, in my view, it's not really understood. So that began my quest to make creativity something that was much more accessible and democratize it. Because I, I was observing that at least in the United States, we have ghettoized creativity in the arts, which I don't believe is fair to artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large. So this book is a product of at least four years of really hits down research, practice, thinking about how to make creativity more accessible. And that led to, to this definition of, of creativity being this toggling between wonder and rigor. And you can hear in that definition, the influence of chaotic systems thinking for in me. Yeah, really, really profound. And, and you also alluded already to the idea that creativity is this inherent human skill that we have that we've been using ever since we have been walking upright for to solve interesting problems. Like at first, the interesting problem of survival, like how do I make it to tomorrow without getting eaten by something? Right. Um, and now, you know, now we have to think creative, creatively to reference what you said earlier about, you know, what are we going to do about this situation that we find ourselves in again, around the ideas of racism and social justice and, and, and so forth. So I, I really, um, and I also really love the way that you're, you know, the improvisation is another tricky word, at least yeah. in, in my experience, because people think, oh, I get to just do whatever I feel. And it's like, well, no, actually, you have to feel within the container. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, like jazz musicians, I can't remember, um, it might have been Charlie Parker, but uh, there's this, you know, quote, you spend all that time doing the training and learning, and then you have to forget all that stuff when you get on stage and just play. Maybe it's John Coltrane. Um, it, was, it was Charlie Parker. He, he, yeah. he said that, and then you just get on that bandstand and you just wail. He said that, you, yeah, you spend all this time learning the patterns, the technique, the music theory, and then you have to relinquish control. Uh, and, and as he put it, you just wail, which he certainly was just outstanding at, at doing and, and what's interesting to me about those musicians of that era is that they, they they were not going to academia to learn their craft 
they were learning it from each other and they you know they weren't studying their music theory books they they came to understanding of higher concepts through the act of doing the work and practicing the work and now oftentimes we see you know now that jazz has been largely institutionalized and is, is taught in academic programs that we see a lot of focus on the technique and sometimes in my experience i see people playing highly technical stuff that lacks what charlie and john and miles you know really had so it's i love that idea that you have to do the training you have to do the work but you also have to then just live and express and remember Absolutely. who it's for which is not the artist it's actually for the audience um and can i just i just want to just build, build on your point that um you know some jazz musicians d really did have that technical classical training like miles himself did juilliard, he was at right. juilliard for for a few years he didn't he decided to to leave because maybe to your point you know it it, it art is is contextual and and um sometimes i wonder why why hasn't jazz why has jazz evolved in the way that it has right it was a it was a it was an extension of protest music in a lot of ways. And I, and I believe it was, I think it was also Charlie Parker who said, cause he, he was one of the progenitors of bebop. And he, I believe is, is was um, fond of saying that the reason why he, he followed jazz in this direction from the cool period to, to bebop is, is because he didn't want whites to, to copy him anymore right he thought if i if i play in this really elaborate intricate fast way there's no way that that, that i'll be copied which is hilarious um but yeah is is you know Wynton marcellus has said that jazz is grown folks music which was one of the reasons why for me as a, as a kid i understood it was a way i could get close to my father but i didn't really get it like it's 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 really complex music i i got it as I, the older i got um is jazz was so rooted in um, the the struggle of African Americans and the struggle specifically of Black men to be taken seriously and to be taken seriously in a dignified way. Um, so, so all those sorts of things are super interesting to me as well about jazz. No, I, I you know, as a as a as a student of not just the craft but also the history, um, it's 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 rich and it's complicated and it's often painful. Um, you know, but this is how we arrive at deeper, higher truths and how we make progress by leaning into the difficulties and acknowledging, you know, where things went awry and, um, and, and at the same time, appreciating that beauty and creative flourishing, you know, came out of that. That's right. Out of a lot of pain. We're arriving at towards the end of our time together, but I, I just want to follow this thread just a little bit longer, um, because. You know, we have the creativity piece, which is our capacity to solve interesting problems and to bring forth things into the world that didn't exist until we put them together. Um, and then I'm just interested in your take on this because I've I've written about this in some of my work um, and think about this. The what's the difference between creativity and the the craft of of developing your creativity, and at what point do we talk about that as art or, you know, is there a difference uh, in your mind between the creativity piece and the artistic piece, a creative and an artist? So the way I think about it is 
that creativity is the means to the end. And not everyone is an artist at all. But in my opinion, everyone has the capacity to be creative. It is what distinguishes us from so many other mammals, right? It is our capacity to do these recombinations of things in order to produce the novel. And for some, it manifests in their work in their life as artists. To be an incredible scientist, you must be creative. To be a genius attorney, you must be creative. And to be an incredible farmer, et cetera. So I interviewed over 50 people who come from a range of sectors to kind of test this hypothesis. The thing is that artists are just exceptional at wrestling with ambiguity. As, as Laura Linney said in this great interview, I heard her do on the podcast, um, uh, Hello Monday, which is a LinkedIn podcast. Uh, she talks ab about how artists are really good at sitting with the discomfort of uncertainty and the discomfort of ambiguity. You can't go around it. You just got to you just got to push your way through it. And sometimes that means like you're staring at a blank canvas or at unfinished work or you you have to go back to your scales. or You go back to to the fundamentals till you get to that breakthrough. Um, and they sit with that. They are they are okay with dealing with the messiness of process versus only being fixated on solution. They also design in time and space in their life and their work for the wonder, to be able to dream, to be audacious, to be silly, to be uh, to pause from things, right? And the difference is that unfortunately in our educational system, and I can say this because I, I have over 20 years experience in the education industry as a professor, as a middle school English teacher, which is probably the best preparation for anything I've ever done. Um, but we, as you elevate and excel in our traditional educational system, you get rewarded for deep specialization. You get rewarded for having an answer, the answer, right? And because process is messy, process takes time. And I believe what we're now coming to terms with in navigating COVID-19 and, and, and dealing with systemic racism and social injustice is that these are what are called wicked problems. It doesn't mean that it's wicked, but that's just a term for them. Mm -hmm. It's a complex problem, right? It doesn't have an easy entry point or a clear exit point. The only way to navigate these sorts of complex challenges, you can't do it with a, with a series of straight line arrows and boxes. It has to be done through, uh, in my view, with complexity. And creativity is a complex system. So one of the ways to navigate complexity is with complexity, creativity. Yeah, really appreciate that. Um, you're going there a little bit with the the inequality and the and the need for for justice um you know which is a founding american principle but we we've, we've conflated it with um legislation and legal <laughs> solutions when it justice has very little to do with either of those things and just a question to um the the second to last question what so one of the things i'm hearing in your answer about the creativity and artist piece is that you know, we, I, th I think of creativity as just an inherent human instinct, impulse. It's something that we are born. This is how we learn how to walk and talk and ride a bike and make a sandwich and navigate social relationships and so forth. At some point, 
there is some domain where you are going to level up to that idea of artistry by by doing the work as a professional, which means you show up every day and you do the work. You do your work out loud and in public. You do your work even when you know that you don't know what's going to happen next. Even when you know, to you know, our friend Seth Godin's point, this might not work. Right. And you're dedicated to the pursuit of of doing all of that out loud. And how how do you see how do you see us empl employing that to the the wicked problems to, to you know that you're, mm -hmm. you alluded to? I I think wicked problems require that we have some wicked conversations. The wicked conversations are conversations that we don't know how they're going to end, and we don't have a right answer. But it's again to this idea of professional and artistic is we are um, committed to having to making the decision to continue the conversation to not correct to not yeah. trying to end the conversation but to continue it until we get to a better place yes any any, any insights on how you know yeah i i have some, i have some thoughts happen. about that you know i i think that the way that artists are trained the way that even designers are trained is this notion of a work in progress right and part of your mastery and your ability to why well, don't we say finish the project because i remember even learning in dance and i've never forgotten this one of the basic movements in dance is a plie which is a bend and a releve which is a rise on on the metatarsal of your feet. And um, I remember a teacher just explained to us, you have to extend, extend, extend in the releve, you never arrive. And for whatever reason in my uh, daydreamy head, I, that, I, that was probably bouncing around in my head for the rest of class. I thought, that's so deep, that's so true. Like, do we ever arrive? And that was one of those, those takeaways from dance. But here's where creativity um, and where how it manifests in artistry is really relevant to navigating these wicked challenges. Creativity thrives in mess mm -hmm. and in messiness. And this is not going to be a sanitized process. We, we shouldn't try to sanitize it because actually our, our nation was founded on two very contrasting principles, that of liberty and slavery simultaneously. And so we've never really dealt with the, the, the hard, sweaty, shameful work of of reconciling to those two polar opposite principles upon which our country was founded, right? So one of the things that I think is valuable about creativity is that because it asks for experimentation, because it thrives in mess and messiness, it actually gives us the grace to mess up. It allows for the grace that to say, I'm probably gonna say this wrong, I'm going to apologize in advance and hold me accountable as I fumble over my words. We need to be okay with prototyping our way through mm -hmm. solutions for this. We're not going to get it right out of the gate. And it really, in my view, has to start with very human conversations, looking eyeball to eyeball each other and, and, say out loud, say it out loud. And, and then let's, then, now we know what we're working with. Now we know what we're dealing with and let's do our research. Let's fact find, let's, let's tell the whole story, right? So that we can reconcile and so that we can give each other the grace uh, that, that needs to come 
when we're working through messiness and we're, when we're when we need to be experimental. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. It, I, and I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. These conversations have to be out loud and they have to be in public and we have to do it without trying to cancel each other and we have to do it without just trying to legislate a solution because that has not ever worked. It's going to have, have to happen in one by one conversations that ripple out and, and um, until we have an undeniable model, an undeniably better model alongside the model that we have, we don't have a place for people to go. Really um, appreciate all, appreciate your book so much, Natalie. It was really uh, just a book where uh, loaded with ahas for me. And I think it's a really profound and important work and that I've been sharing in my community. Um, I do want to end with one last question, which is, if you could share just one last piece of advice, one tip, one tool, one idea that would help anybody tuning in right now level up in the endeavor where they seek artistry and to uh, to make a difference through their work, what would that what would that piece of advice be? So it's probably a well. For thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing my work with your community. I really, really appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it comes down to a phrase I, I like to use a lot, which I'm, I'm getting feedback from people that they that it resonates with them, which is to be a clumsy student of something. And that involves practicing what I call um, the baby food method of unpacking things, reverse engineering, deconstructing it and taking the incremental steps. I, I, I think when we are a student of something, um, it's also about what you've been, been saying in our conversation, which is living things out loud, airing it out, oxygenating it, showing the work in progress. There, there is this real um, stranglehold that a lot of us have. I, I have I have struggled with it myself, which is, um, and my husband would, would always be counseling me when he would see me get to those moments of hesitation and struggle where he would remind me, don't let perfection be the enemy of good, right? We need someone in our corner reminding us of that so that we bravely step out on stage or on the corner or on a Zoom uh video and share this is something i've been working on this is something i've been thinking about because if you work on it in isolation only you're not actually uh, doing the idea service right you have to air it out you have to get feedback incorporated so i i would say be a clumsy student of something and my, right now i'm a clumsy student of the tango and foxtrot <laughs> <laughs> well good for you that tango in particular it oh my requires a great deal of bravery mm -hmm. uh, so great so well thanks everybody for tuning in natalie and i really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention and we hope that today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage um natalie please tell everybody where they can learn more about you and your work and and find your book Thank you, Scott. Um, you can learn more about me and the Creativity Leap on figure8thinking.com. That's the word figure, the number eight, thinking.com. And also subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is uh, just type in Natalie Nixon on YouTube. And I share a lot of content there. Fantastic. And of course, it's always great to see you at creativeonpurpose.com too. And now it's time for you to go out and make a difference and keep flying higher. Natalie Nixon, thank you so much for all of your time today. Thank you, Scott.